Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at verse 19 and verse 20. <clears throat> Matthew 28, verse 19 to verse 20. We came across in the UK, in the newspapers there, the tragic uh, story uh, of Carl and Railing Worthington. Uh, here in the States, they are the parents of a 15-month-old daughter, Ava. And uh, this couple is a very tragic story, Carl and Raylene Worthington. They're on trial, or when I read this in the newspaper, they're on trial for manslaughter and criminal mistreatment for the infant's death. I say tragic because I have no doubt that these parents love their daughter. She's 15 months old, and she died of a treatable disease, pneumonia. She could have been treated. She could have been taken care of and her life spared. But this couple were Christians and they prayed for healing and would not go to the doctors. A very tragic case. But there's a truth here that when you remove man's involvement in the name of faith, this was a decision, we will not go to the doctors. When you remove man's involvement in the name of faith, oftentimes something that is precious, something that is God-given can be lost. And that is especially true in the arena of discipleship. When we remove man's involvement in the name of faith. And so I want to look this morning at the need of a man. Matthew 28 verse 19 to verse 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I want to have a look with you first of all as we consider the need of a man and God's will. There's something uh, that is common to all, and that is an, uh, an aversion to man's involvement. There's something that is very common. It is born from several things. We don't want a man's involvement uh, uh, born out of uh, uh, perhaps the shepherding movements, uh, groups like the Jesus Army. These are groups uh, that you, you can't do anything without the permission of the mentor. You can't buy a car without his permission. You can't spend your money without his permission. In fact, in many of these groups, uh, all the money is given uh, 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 to somebody uh, and uh, they are the ones that organize and orchestrate. And because of that, there's a withdrawing. We are warned uh, of the tendency uh, to trust people more than God. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength.
strength. There's something in the human spirit, a natural distrust, the rebellious nature of men that simply says, I'm not going to have a man tell me what to do. You know what the problem with church is? Is it's all about man-made rules. Another thing is our own desire, our own self-will. Proverbs 18 verse 1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, he rages against all wise judgment. You see, when you hear someone say, I'm here to please God and not man, that is often a smokescreen for your own agenda. It is God's will and God's intent that men would be involved in our lives. This is a crucial and a critical element of being a Christian. Despite our aversion because of the shepherding movements, despite our natural distrust, no man is going to tell me what to do, in spite of our natural desire, our own self-will and agenda, God's will is that men would be involved in our lives. Our text says clearly, go and make disciples. He's looking at men and he's saying to them, I want you to go and make disciples. No one is born a disciple. We are made. We are made by someone. There is no more the lost being saved without a preacher than a disciple made without a teacher. You make Literally, disciple, instruct, teach. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, pastors, teachers. What for? He gave them for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Men are given to the church to equip them for ministry. Men are given literally uh, to equip them means to complete thoroughly, to repair, to adjust, to frame. Now we see this principle throughout life. We see uh, this in Proverbs 22 verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. There is no one who doubts God's intent for a parent and a child. There is no one uh, uh, who doubts uh, that a parent has the responsibility uh, to set rules and boundaries uh, and to make decisions uh, for the shaping, uh, for the equipping of that child for life. No one is impressed when a teenager says, well, what's this 11 o'clock curfew? Uh, where's that in the Bible? You know, what's all these man-made rules, Dad? You know, 11 o'clock, I've got to be... Where does it say that in the Bible? We understand that a parent has responsibilities. Our evangelist, Michael Nicolau, uh, used to be in the British Army. And he was telling me that uh, uh, when he joined the army, uh, he had to pledge allegiance 
to the queen. Now, as he pledged allegiance to the queen, fast forward a little bit, he's now on parade. A grueling sergeant major is there. Attention! And he starts, you know, attention! And, you know, Nicolau's kind of like, you know, imagine if he did that. Nicolau! What are you doing? Step forward! And Nicolau replies, Sir, I pledged allegiance to the queen. If the queen was here telling me, I would do it. <laughs> How many people know that's not going to get him very far? You see, we pledge allegiance to the chief shepherd, Jesus, but we don't want the involvement of his under-shepherds, and we say, well, if Jesus told me, Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 29, this is written to pastors, therefore take heed, or spoken to pastors, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The very term disciple, methetes, a learner, a pupil, by the very definition of that word, you must have a teacher. And that is something in Bible times that was completely understood. The Bible says that Paul, uh, in Acts 22, describing his own life, uh, said, I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness uh, of our Father's law. In Mark chapter 2, verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came to him and they said, Why do the disciples of John uh, and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's interesting that Jesus doesn't correct them and doesn't say to them, Don't say disciples of John. They belong to the Lord, brother. Because they understood understood that training, that teaching, that equipping in the things of God came from this relationship of a teacher and a disciple. Jeremiah 35, thus says the Lord, uh, because you've obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and have kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever because quite simply, first of all, I want to say that this is the will and the intent of God. As the apostle Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. It is first of all very clear that uh, it is the will and intent of God to have a man who trains, equips, teaches us, who makes us a disciple of Christ. So let's have a look secondly at being made. Now there's an important distinction here and some confusion. You see, and some confuse this, Jesus brings a warning. He says in Matthew 15, 3 to 4, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Verse 7, Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect 
by your tradition. Verse 9, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul takes that same edge and says in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Boast. Jesus uh, uh, and the apostle are writing about and speaking about and warning about the added burdens, the added requirements and the commands imposed by men to make others right with God. Now that's an important distinction. Because what he's speaking about is those that are adding things to the faith. You need to do this or don't do that for acceptance with God. If you do this, you'll be saved. If you don't do that, you won't be saved. And the error of many who cry legalism in our churches... The error of many who gripe and say, oh, this church, it's all about man's expectations. It's all about man's laws, imposed standards that are not biblical. They are confusing man's doctrines for salvation and the training and the being equipped for the challenging task of ministry, of the making of disciples, as we have been instructed to do so by the Lord. What they are fighting and what they are resisting is not at the means for salvation issues, but rather the means for discipleship. Oh, no, this church, uh, it's all about man-made. Where does it say that in the Bible? They're, they're resisting it as if it is being taught uh, that you must do this to be saved. Rather, uh, not understanding these things are being taught and held up and challenged as means of making disciples. Being made. And that right there is a long-term objective. We are not the finished article at salvation. When we gave our lives to Christ, uh, uh, we understand that He begun a good work in us, but yet He desires to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, there's a rebuke. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles because you've not grown. You've not matured because it's not automatic. We don't just become a Christian and we're the finished article. There is a process of being made and the church is a training ground. The church is a place where that training and the effects of that training should be evident. 
Acts chapter 6, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. There was something that was evident that men could see. They could look around the assembly and they could see evidence of those that had grown, those that had developed, those who were full of the Holy Spirit. And of good reputation. First Timothy 4, 12 to 16. Let no one, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, let no one despise your youth. Be an example. Goes on to say, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Don't neglect the gift, son. Uh, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Why? That your progress may be evident to all. What he's saying, he's asking the question, son, are you, are you reading? What are you reading? Are you giving yourself to doctrine? Uh, uh, are, you, are you growing? Are you meditating? Are you, uh, are you an example? Where were you on Saturday? Uh, you know, he's asking these things because uh, he has the right, his desire is my son, that your, your, you would grow and your progress would be evident to all. See, there's a warning in 2 Timothy 3. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be proud, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without self-control, despisers of good, uh, having a form of godliness, denying its power. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved, concerning the faith, listen to this, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. And he goes on, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, and afflictions, because right there is a powerful truth there are those in our churches who have embraced the spirit of the age. They resist authority. They say to themselves, well, this is man's ways and I'm tired of man's expectations and man's input. Well, the Bible says they progress no further. One of the tragedies of our congregations uh, is to look out at a man, uh, uh, someone uh, who is incredibly, we all have them, incredibly talented, incredibly gifted. You look at these young men or older men, older women, they have huge potential, yet they remove themselves from carefully following they remove themselves from being trained or discipled. They say, in the name of faith is between me and the Lord. They remove themselves and there is no more growth. And as the years pass, you look at these tragic saints and they've never moved on. They've never grown in life or in ministry. You see, the church is kind of like a boot camp. 
You know, and that's not to make people's life a misery. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, the, 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 the proper boot camp uh, before a man, woman goes into the army is that they, they don't just torture people for the sake of torturing. You know, let's just, you know, they do that. They put them through the obstacle courses. They raise the standards. They ring the bell early in the morning, etc., etc. Because what they're trying to do is put into these uh, uh, soldiers and into these people the physical and the mental ability to face, uh, 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 face to prepare them for the real war. They put challenges in so when they step into the ministry, they will have something within them. They are wanting these soldiers to stay alive in the battle, to be effective. They put them through those things that they would go out and win the war. The emphasis in our churches of morning prayer of outreach, of faithfulness to revival meetings, no TV, standards of dress, punctuality, tithing. I mean, I could list is endless of all the expectations, of all the challenges and the, and the demands and the hopes and the, and the uh, uh, requirements, etc. All of those things, the emphasis is exactly the same. Our hope is that as you go through those things, at the end of it, you will be able to face and be equipped for the real war and the real challenge of ministry, that you will make it to the end and be fruitful. You know, John McCain wrote a book, I believe, or, or it's his biography, A Flag of Ram, uh, uh, in, his, in his biography, there's an illustration, it's called the flag of rags. I want to read it to you, though you may well have heard it. In the final years of our imprisonment, the North Vietnamese moved us from a small cell with one or two prisoners to large rooms with as many as 30 to 40 men to a room. We preferred this situation for the companionship and the strength that we could draw from our fellow prisoners. In our cell was one Navy officer, Lieutenant Commander Mike Christian. Over a period of time, Mike had gathered bits and pieces of red-white cloth from various packages. Using a piece of bamboo he had fashioned into a needle, Mike sewed a United States flag on the inside of his shirt, one of the blue pajama tops we all wore. Every night in our cell, Mike would put his shirt on the wall and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. And you can imagine these prisoners of war, these men no doubt hungry, these men no doubt in fear, these men no doubt in uncertainties of life, standing before this pajama top with the American flag sewn on it, with their arm as you do, and speaking out those words. Every night in our cell, Mike would put his shirt on the wall and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. I know that the Pledge of Allegiance may not be the most 
important aspect of our day now. But I can tell you that at that time, it was the most important aspect of our lives. This, has been, this had been going on for some time until one of the guards came in as we were reciting our pledge. They ripped the flag off the wall and they dragged Mike out. He was beaten for several hours. This man is bashed and beaten and then thrown back into the cell. Later that night, as we were settling down to sleep on the concrete slabs that were our beds, I looked over to the spot where the guards had thrown Mike. There, under the solitary light bulb hanging from the ceiling, I saw Mike, still bloody, and his face swollen beyond recognition. Mike was gathering bits and pieces of cloth together. He was sewing a new American flag. You see, one of the things from England as we look here at America that always amazes me when I come here is the huge patriotism. But you see, those that want to remove prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance from your schools don't understand that the result of those things, there is an incredible patriotism, there's an incredible sense of pride and honor in your nation and a love for country and that years later, in a cell in North Vietnam, this is where it plays out. You see, here these soldiers were. They had been brought up in a generation where every day they made that pledge. And in the battle and in that cell, they did it again. My Christian, crawling again to make the flag because what you do today will have a profound meaning tomorrow. I want to have a look as we close at a disciple and the heart of the matter. Because what we're speaking of, when we're speaking of all of this, this training ground, this, these things, these expectations, these demands, these, these hopes, these questions, these, this accountability, it, it's more than a program. Now, I know that it sounds like one. But the reason why we emphasize it's not, because the truth is men can jump through all the hoops, they can do all the right things, but totally miss the heart of why we do what we do and why. Because making disciples is more than have they ticked all the boxes. Did they put away the equipment? Yes, tick. Were they in prayer in the morning? Yep, tick. Were they on outreach? Yep, follow up. Yep, yep, yep. They're a disciple. There are three things that we've been taught that make disciples. The first is involvement. 
This is involvement not in a classroom, but in real ministry. It is through the stress, the stretching, the questions, the feeling of, I can't cope, I can't do this, this is too big for me. All of those issues, success and failure, the challenges beyond real ministry is what causes us to grow as a disciple to learn, to be taught. The second thing is the impartation of spirit. As we heard last night, the commitment to a relationship by following a man's way of life, a man's exampleship. We learn what makes him tick, what's in his heart, his spirit, and that can be transferred. And then thirdly, there's the God factor. That is the choices made in secret between a man and his God His relationship, his calling, uh, uh, God's equipping and uh, uh, calling for that man's life. So it's more than just ticking boxes. But it has to do with the heart of a man. But you see, you always get those that are put out. I remember one of our our brothers was going through a bad time and another brother asked him, hey man, I haven't seen you in morning prayer. And he got his nose out of joint and said, hey man, I'm praying at home as if he was offended. I don't have to do that and be seen by men. I don't have to, you know, uh, brother, you know, when I first got saved, listen, when I first got saved, or saved in Perth, Australia, uh, my dress sense was, well, I didn't have one. I used to go to church, was never a problem, a brand new convert. I used to, you know, baggy, anyway, whatever, you know, just a mess but the turning point was when I wore a, I don't know what you call them, a singlet or a vest, like just your undergarment. No, you know, the vest. I wore that to somebody's wedding. That was kind of like a bit of a turning point for me. I've been saved numbers of months, and one of the brothers kindly said, do you think that for someone's wedding, really, that you should be wearing a, you know. But anyway, as you grow in God, <laughs> as you grow in God, you say, you know what, man, I'm coming to church. Well, you know, so, People get, they go, you know, I'm not, you know, God sees my heart. I don't have to go to prayer in the morning. God sees my heart. Yep, (laughs) he does. It's more than a program. But what it is, is a framework, a structure where men and women like me and you who had, when we came to Christ, no clue about commitment, no understanding of sacrifice, of denial of self, of discipline, of loyalty, of values, of ability to take correction and trust that this framework that we enter into, we can be trained and equipped. When Jesus washed the feet of Peter, Peter's confused and he says, What? Uh, and Jesus replies and says, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. You know what? There's some things that we do that you may not understand completely, but I say this to you as time goes on, you may not understand every demand and every uh, 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 criteria and standard and expectation. Is how come? Why? Well, I tell you what. If you just do it, 
over the passing of time, you will begin to see how it plays out the fruit and the ramifications and eventually it will become a conviction about why we do what we do. It's not just, well, our fellowship says, but we do what we do because it produces, it produces disciples. You know, we had a, one of our uh, ladies leave our church a little while ago and didn't say anything. She'd been in the church for a number of years and off she went and never said a word, just took off. And a little while later, she wrote us a letter apologizing for the way that she'd left and not saying anything and uh, so forth and so on. And, but there's an interesting uh, uh, little line in there. She said, uh, uh, the standards that I learned at the potters, at the potters, don't you hate that, at the potters, Standards, what I learned at the Potters, are still fundamental to my spiritual walk. Now, I understand all the fluff, but the point that she's making, and here she, she's a woman, and she gets it. She writes back and she says, despite all of this, those standards, those things that I can't, those have, are the very foundation. You're going to ask her why you leave. But anyway, that's another, you know. <laughs> but I want to ask you as we close this morning to examine yourself, to examine your way of living, to examine your choices, your attitude in line with Christ's criteria for a disciple. And let us listen to the heart and the spirit when Jesus said in Matthew 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. So the first question is, are you following someone that close? Are you a learner? The second thing, Luke 14, 26 to 27, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and his mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Here Jesus is putting all of the natural relationships secondary to our relationship and obedience to God. And so this is why we preach, we believe firstly in discipleship, we believe in having teachers. We believe in having men that we learn and can be imparted from. We believe, secondly, as a mark of a disciple, that righteousness would be more important to us than relationship. Luke 14, 27 to 28, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33, So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he cannot be my disciple. Well, I think 
that too much is expected. Really. I mean, really. No, I just think. I really do. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> really. We're aiming to make disciples. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. John 14, uh, sorry, John 13, 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, what's love? What's well, love? What's love? Don't do it. Don't do it. What's love? What is love? Is it us just getting together in some... We know it's not. Where love is really seen is when all hell breaks loose and you remain committed to one another. Where love is really seen is in covenant. Where love is really seen is in loyalty. And that's why we preach what we do because we are learning to love. We are in relationship because we are disciples. By this, my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And that is why we challenge, uh, 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 we push, we preach, we encourage that there will be a desire for contending, for outreach, for souls, Forgiving for righteousness, why the bar is here and not here, why there's expectations, why there's questions, why there's input, why we look that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. I want to close with an old illustration. My hope is it's so old that you've not used it for a long time. But it fits so well. It's called the Master's Touch, and I'm closing. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioner thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars. Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-headed, gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow and then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings. He played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneur, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now am I bid for this old violin? And he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand, two thousand, 
Do I hear two? Two thousand. Who makes it three? Three thousand once. Three thousand twice. Going and gone, he said. The audience cheered. But some of them cried. We just don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply. The touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune all battered with bourbon and gin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Our aim is that your life would be touched by the master's hand, that you would be the disciple that he called you to be. Can you say amen? God bless you.